pleasing the Lord uh, with your whole heart and giving Him the glory because uh, He is certainly the sure and steady anchor of our soul. And so with that song before us and all that we've seen so far behind us now, we, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, together. Father, we come before you and we come this Palm Sunday and we indeed have similar words that we have been praying as of late. Hosanna. May we be delivered. May you deliver us. We know that there as the palm branches were being laid, Many were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But we know that even as we have been praying, many have been praying for deliverance from this virus. We know ultimately that the deliverer over not just viruses and the curses that we we find in this world and in our bodies, but we know that the Deliverer has, has come to save us fully and completely through Him. That though our bodies are decaying now, we know that one day we will have glorified bodies in Christ when they are risen in Him. And so we thank You that though our heart, our hope is not here in this world. And we, we should not expect that our bodies will not cease to be, be sick now. We still live in a broken world where we will get sick, we will die. But our hope goes beyond this body and in this world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the one who has risen and was risen for us. Our Deliverer has come. And so, we pray, Father, that you would help us as your church to hope in you and to have our hope in Him, in Christ, in Christ alone. We pray, Father, that as we come this morning to come under your word, prepare our hearts, help us, Lord, to seek your face, and even humbling ourselves there right now at home, that you would work in our hearts this morning. And we ask that you would lead us by your Spirit and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now on our fourth week of solely doing live stream uh, services. And I know many of you right now, perhaps, may be growing weary, you know, of this, all this social distancing. Um, you know, honestly, you know, you're not alone. I'm feeling it. Your neighbors are feeling it. You know, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ at Haven, uh, we're feeling it. So, in the midst of all this, let me encourage you. Let us do this together. 
let us remember the fact that this is not just a solitary kind of faith. Even now, even in the midst of all this social distancing, in the midst of uh, the right actions we're taking and and, uh, not meeting together for a time. I mean, these, these things are right, yet that does not mean that we are now called to do all this alone. That, that's never been true, and that is still not true. So right now, even now, let us show the world what it means to be the body of Christ. So let us be there for each other. Let us call each other. So you're, I know many, most here are probably from Haven, and so all the members of Haven, this is an opportunity for us to do just that. Make sure we're caring for each other, texting each other, keep praying for each other. If you see a need that may need to be met and, and you're able to meet it, you know, by all means, let's, let's meet that need. And so, let's shine as the body of Christ before a world that needs to see the light of Christ. Christ is sufficient and He is able to uphold us in this time. Is He not? Was it not just to say that, well, we have trusted Him for salvation, but everything else doesn't qualify? No, I mean, that, that's not true and that's never been true. Christ is sufficient for this and for any day ahead. Blessing or trouble, persecution or famine, He is sufficient. And so, let us go to Him and keep going to Him unashamedly saying before a world that coronavirus and no coronavirus, Christ is my treasure and our treasure. And so, this morning, that is what we're going to do. We have been progressing through the Gospel of John here over these last few weeks. And again and again, what, we have, what, we have, what have we seen? We have been directed again and again to Christ. And so, even as we sang, let Christ be the steady and sure anchor of our souls this morning as well. And so with that, let's fix our eyes on Him. And if you would then, please turn with me to John chapter 3. And I'll be reading John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 there in your Bible. So if you have a copy of your Bible, please a copy of the Bible, please turn with me there. And I'll begin in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter 
the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Well, here we have the well-known dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus Now, if you remember from last time, as we were progressing through the Gospel of John, of course, we ended chapter 2 last time, but that actually bears some weight on what we're seeing right now here as well. We ended, if you look back there, even in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, it says that many believed when they saw the signs that Jesus did. And like we said, I mean, this, this seems like, you know, well, Amen. Praise the Lord. But then we saw something else here as well that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew them. He knew their hearts. Well, that that point continues on. And we actually are kind of seeing that here with Nicodemus. And we're seeing this as we progress through these chapters ahead in different ways. As people, you know, respond to Jesus and Jesus responds to them. And so, as we kind of continue in these coming chapters, we see, you know, Jesus, he encounters various people here at Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes with a certain kind of response. Is it belief? Is it not? The Samaritan woman, well, she has a response as well and we kind of continue on, and it is of this nature flowing from the end of chapter 2. two. So, believe. Who, who are the ones that Christ is entrusting Himself to? And so now here, with the first of these then, we have Nicodemus. So, you know, as we read, of course, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus by night. Now, it could be that, I mean, I know many have preached it this way and no fault on their part, but many, you know, uh, say that here uh, Nicodemus was coming because he came at night because he was timid or perhaps fearful of his reputation or afraid of what others may say. And so he went to Jesus by night 
because you know he didn't want everyone to know that he was coming to Jesus to try to understand these things more. But I don't, you know, we've heard that and, and I see that. I can see how that can happen or how you can see that. But I don't want us to run there too quickly uh, to think that that's, that's the reason why uh, Nicodemus is doing this. I think there are other reasons that Nicodemus may have done this. So Nicodemus, he may, may have come at night so he could get Jesus' undivided attention. So right then and there, I mean, there are all the crowds, they have dissipated. You know, this is an opportunity for Nicodemus to have really, you know, full opportunity to talk to Jesus without interruption. And that's, that's good. And so that's, that's one sort of possibility. Another is that that could be that Nicodemus came later in the night because as teachers of the law, that's what they, uh, at this time, they would, they would end up coming out at night after having spent the night studying. And just now they come to the opportunity, or he has the opportunity to come and talk to Jesus. And so that's, that's another kind of option. But, you know, I tend to think that, you know, it was so Nicodemus could have Jesus' undivided attention. So remember, John, so far, he has made it plain that Jesus knew people. And Jesus was not one to withhold rebuke. Even here, we're actually seeing a rebuke, which we'll get to here as well, but he's not one to withhold a rebuke for ill motives. Yet, that's not what we're seeing here. We don't see Jesus scold or critique Nicodemus for coming at night. You know, well, I know why you really came at night, Nicodemus. You know, uh, you're, you are, have the fear of men in you. But we don't see that. We don't see even a negative connotation here with Nicodemus coming at night. And so there's, there's none of that really present. So that's why I lean away from saying that Nicodemus was coming because he was timid or any of these things um, here. And so uh, Nicodemus, though, his, his demeanor is interesting as we look at how he kind of approaches Jesus. So Nicodemus, he sees something is different about Jesus. And though he's a teacher himself, Nicodemus, he comes here and he comes to learn. How does he address Jesus? He says, Rabbi, teacher that is, there's something different about you. You do signs that no one else can do who are you? I mean, that's, that's the gist of what he's, he's getting at here. He's asking. And so he's coming, and he's coming in a way that is actually very respectful, which is interesting because he's a Pharisee as well. So what's going on here with Nicodemus? Now, having said that, Nicodemus, though, is not a believer, at least not yet in I'll tell you more of that as we progress through the Gospel of John of what I think about Nicodemus. But Jesus, he knows Nicodemus. He knows his heart. And we have seen that already in the Gospel of John again and again. He knew Simon. He knew Nathaniel. He knows the people. And he knows Nicodemus in his heart as well. So instead of answering Nicodemus' question here. 
he comes to the core of the problem and he challenges Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. So here, this is a rebuke. And here is the heart of this rebuke. Salvation is not predicated upon you. Salvation is not predicated upon you. You cannot save yourself. Life is not found in you. And so we see here then three correctives that inform this rebuke of Nicodemus, which equally hidden behind many things, but now Jesus, as he is right to do, and I would just say, listen, if, if you know Jesus, or even if you don't know Jesus, Jesus, will, he comes exposing us. He comes showing us things about ourselves that we need to see that may not be pleasant. So, coming to this passage, coming before your own soul and your own self, your own mind, your own thoughts, your own heart, just come and ready to lean in to let Jesus do His work in you. And so Jesus is bringing these things to light. And dear friend, it may make you feel uncomfortable to have these things brought into light. But let it and receive it as a mercy. Because that's what it is. It's a mercy. And so the first of these correctives is that salvation is not about how religious you are. And Nicodemus, he was most certainly religious. (laughs) He was a Pharisee. And so these were men who were radically devoted to keeping the law, even in extreme ways. And so of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, the Pharisees, they saw all that and they said, you know what, I think we need to do a little bit more and add more to that. I mean, Wow, I mean, 613, you need to add more to this? I mean, that's just overwhelming by itself to think that for me to be religious like a Pharisee would be, I've got to take this extra step? Wow, that is, that's a lot. And so the Pharisee, they say, you know, let's, let's make our own, let's make our own commands as well to this. And so they wanted to make sure though, why were they doing this? They wanted to make sure that they kept the law. That's why. 613 commandments or commands, I've got to know that I can obey these laws exactly as they are uh, written. So every I dotted and every T crossed was what was going on in their mind. They were wanting to be holy upon holy. So, just to give you an example of this, so in order to keep the Sabbath day holy and to keep from Working, they devised rules of what work was and what work was not. And so if you tied a knot on the Sabbath, you know, to tie it around a bucket so that you could draw up water, so you could have water to drink or, you know, use for whatever purposes, well, that would be work. And don't do that. So they made that clear. But if a lady tied a knot in her clothing... That was okay, and that's not work, because that's just part of life. 
So, with that same kind of logic, that also would mean that she could tie up some clothing and tie it around a bucket and lower it into water, and that would not be considered work. And so you can see how this kind of works. It, it sounds very, very, very silly and almost comical uh, that they would come up with these kind of caveats here and there, but they were that distinct, and they were all over the place in all of life. I mean, how about that for barring you in? for chains to wear around you. Yet, with all their precision, this was not sufficient. Salvation is not predicated upon your religious performance. The religions around the world function this way. Do this, do that, and perhaps you will gain for yourself salvation. Perhaps if you do it and you do this the right way, you will gain heaven for yourself because of what you do. You will reach nirvana if you do this and do that. But see here, this is exactly what Jesus is rebuking, and this is a rebuke. He rebukes this notion Salvation is not about how religious you are. So that's one. A second corrective here is salvation is not about how influential you are. So Nicodemus, he was a ruler of the Jews. So he was one of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. So he he was certainly a man of influence. And you may be also. You know, you may be well-known. You may be well-known in your, this community. You may be well-known uh, in your job or workplace. And so that when you talk, oh man, you know, this, this person's talking. Everybody quiet down. Let's listen to this person. So your voice matters. Your decisions, they carry some weight. Well, you may be the wealthiest person. You may be the most powerful person. You may be the manager. You may be the CEO. You may be even you know, a president or the president of the United States. Yet, none of these gain you anything in respect to salvation. So, if there is a banner over both of these right now, this is it. Still wanting insufficient, not enough. So two correctives. Let's move on to the third. Nor is salvation about how intelligent you are. So Nicodemus, he was a a teacher. And not just any teacher. He was a teacher of Israel. Verse 10. That's exactly what it says. What Jesus says of him, and that forms another piece of his rebuke. But Nicodemus, he was not just a teacher, he was a teacher among teachers. So a teacher of Israel. You know, as one person put it, he was a reverend professor doctor. I mean, that, that's a you know, high esteem right there. I mean, he was among the Pharisees, He was among the top. And the Pharisees were intelligent men. And yet he was a top among them. 
And so, you know, here in Huntsville, you know, we are known for having a high concentration of highly educated people. I mean, intelligence is, I mean, common here. But intelligence is not a measure of your worthiness for redemption. Rightly, it's been said, you know, you may have a PhD, and just because you have a PhD does not mean you know truth. And so the banner over all of these is still wanting. Not enough. And so salvation is not predicated upon you. Instead, this is what we should come to this, and this should be our response. Cast not yourself upon yourself. So relinquish self-sufficiency. And so, before we continue on into these next points, right now, this is important. This relinquishing of self-sufficiency, this will define what Jesus says next and how Jesus is explaining and setting forth born again. So, right now, ask yourself, are any of, the, any of these indicative of me? Are these things true of me? And so, our demeanor, right now, your demeanor, may it be that right now you cast away self-reliance. Any self-made aspirations that you have for salvation, lay it aside. Do away with them. Because truly, salvation is not predicated upon you. And you will not get, like I said, you will not get what comes next if you are saying to yourself, but there still must be something that I must do. And so instead, Jesus then sets forth what he's saying here. Jesus challenges all of that by saying, you must be born again. But, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? You know, so, I mean, there has been quite a hurrah over this word. And I just mean culturally. Uh, You look at, uh, you know, following the Watergate scandal. And after being sent to prison uh, for, you know, what, seven months. Chuck Colson, he wrote a book entitled, Born Again. How he had come to faith in Christ. And how the Lord had changed him. You know, Jimmy Carter, he was famously quoted and even uh, was indicative of some parts of his campaign that he was said to be a born-again Christian. So, so what does it mean? What, what does this mean here? What does Jesus mean by this phrase, born again? Well, first, it's a birth of God's, God's initiative. It's a birth of God's initiative. And this really is not the first time we've heard that. We've heard this in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. So God, uh, John 1, 12 through 13. 
But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we are already seeing this pressed before us. You see the initiative of God in you coming to faith in Christ? And so Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this literally means, this phrase, born again, it means born from above. But there's more. We're not going to just stop right there because there's more to be, be seen in respect to understanding what Jesus means here by born again. So Nicodemus, he asked Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? I mean, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, you know, on our side of things, we might respond to this and and say, well, that's just, that's a ridiculous question that Nicodemus is asking here. I mean, of course you can't be born twice, Nicodemus. I even know that. But, just remember here, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of thinking through this passage. This is the first time Nicodemus is hearing this, and he is trying to figure out what Jesus is saying. Now, he should have known And I'll tell you why in a minute. But he's trying to understand, what in the world are you talking about? (laughs) Be born again. And so Jesus tells him, you must be born of water and the Spirit. So now Jesus is beginning to fill out what he means by born again. He's saying the same thing here in the second part, except now he's saying more. He's not simply saying... You must be born physically, so like born of water, and be born spiritually as well, like born of the Spirit. He's not saying that. Why? Well, Nicodemus' second question, how can these things be? And Jesus' answer here tells us he means more than simply a physical birth. That, yeah, you were born into this world physically and you're gonna, you need to be born again spiritually as well. He's not saying that. He means more than that. Why? He asks Nicodemus this question. Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? The implication of that is that as a teacher of the Old Testament of the law, Nicodemus should have been able to know what Jesus was talking about. Nicodemus should have seen these things were taught in the Old Testament. But where? Where? Where do we find that in the Old Testament? Ezekiel chapter 36. As God, He comes and He tells Israel, a rebellious Israel, that He will 
bring them out of Babylon. He is making a promise that extends farther than Babylon as well. To being born of water and the Spirit. So Ezekiel 36, chapter 36, verse 25, it says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, born of water and Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Born of the Spirit. Do you see it? And this leads us then to second say of what is being born again. It's a birth from spiritual death to spiritual life. So, why water in Ezekiel? Well, it's a cleansing out of the old man and a creating of the new. Every one of us is born into this world spiritually dead. We have no spiritual heartbeat. So now, if you, if you would, just imagine with me. So not to be morbid or anything, but let's say that a dead man was laying here on the ground before us. And let's say that, you know, I, say to the te- I tell the dead man, Repent! And believe the gospel. Now, mind you, he is a physically dead man on the ground right here. What do you think he's going to do? Well, you got it. He's not going to do anything. He is physically dead. It's not, I I don't think that was too big of a surprise. Okay, well, let's make it easier for the dead man. Let's try something uh, perhaps a little bit more simple. Let's say, Instead, I tell him, all right, you know, stand up. Just, just stand up if you would. Again, what do you think he's going to do? Well, he's not going to do anything. Okay, well, let's, let's make this as simple as possible for this dead man. All right, dead man, just do something. Just do anything at all. Well... Unless you've been watching a lot of you know, zombie shows or movies, you would not expect that this dead man would do anything because he's dead. Well, that is what it's like for us spiritually as well. We are dead spiritually. No heartbeat. And so... Jesus' words are of paramount importance here. You must be born 
again, Nicodemus. You must be born from above. God must take the initiative. That hard, stony, fleshly heart, that has to be removed. That dead heart has to be removed. Just like you had absolutely nothing to do with your physical birth, you have nothing to do with being born again. It must be God's initiative or nothing. And this is made all the more apparent with the next chapter of Ezekiel. What do we find there? Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel, he is taken to this valley of dry bones. In other words, it is a valley of dead people. These dead people can't live. They're even bones. What could bring life to them? But what happens? As Ezekiel prophesies and God breathes life upon their dead bodies, a valley of dead people come to life. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, all your religious efforts are in vain. You must be born again. You need a heart wrought by God. God's initiative from spiritual death to spiritual life. And third, it's a birth that is identifiable. It's a birth that is identifiable. So in the midst of this, you, probably like Nicodemus, have a lot of questions. But a mystery abounds here. God, this is clear, God must take the initiative. And Jesus, he tells Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows here and there as it wishes. You hear it, but you don't know more than that. In other words, you will not be able to fully understand how all this takes place, but that's not the point. The point is this. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you will be able to recognize the dead man is no longer dead. A dead man may look like a lot of things, but he certainly won't look alive. And so the person who has been born again won't look dead anymore. They'll look and live and long and love as a person who is alive. I love Jesus Christ. He is my life. And that is not just your profession. It is your life. You know, I remember my life before I became a Christian. You know, I I look like a lot of things. And I know that people all around me probably thought this guy is fooling himself. I mean, I was, you know, doing terrible things and 
saying terrible things and and yet I, I would wear a cross necklace around my neck and, and I would even people ask, I would even say, Yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. But I was not spiritually breathing. I was not alive. But something changed. And something must change in you. God must rescue us from the inside out. So we need new hearts. That is why when you hear from the world, trust your heart, that is not good counsel. Our hearts deceive us and mislead us. And you're going to trust that? No! Trust God's Word. Trust Jesus Christ. Nicodemus and the Pharisees, they had it wrong. External compliance is not enough. Internal, internal change. A new heart being born again is what is needed. God must come and put in and bring about a new heart in you. And give you a new heart. God must come to the rescue. Breathing life into our spiritually dead hearts. And so what did he say to Andrew? He said, come alive, Andrew. Like Jesus when he rose Lazarus from the dead. Come alive, Lazarus. That's what happens in here when you are born again. But there's more for us to see and say here as well, isn't there? This leads us then to these last verses here in our passage. And it leads to our response. Nicodemus, he continues, asking Jesus here, how can these things be? Now, Jesus comes and he doubly rebukes Nicodemus. He is a teacher of Israel and he does not understand what Jesus is saying. He comes from the Pharisees. And he came from them and he came with their conclusions regarding Jesus. But Jesus also bears witness, not merely as one who went to heaven, but as one who came from heaven the Son of Man. And so Jesus directs us to the appropriate response, which is this. See, Jesus is the one who became a curse for us. So Jesus, He he takes us here to Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, after the people, they had spoken against Moses, they had Uh, grumbled against him as they often did. God was not okay with this. And he sent his wrath against them through fiery serpents that bit the people so that some died, but all of them were affected. And Moses, he responds by praying to God, have mercy on us. And he went and did as God told him to do. And what did he do? He went 
And he made a fiery serpent and he set it on a pole so that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Numbers 21.8 The serpent which bit them and killed them was the thing put on the pole. But what does this have to do with Jesus? I mean, he's being identified with his serpent. Well, there's a reason for that. Like the curse of the serpent, which was God's wrathful response for their sin, Jesus would come and take the sin and the curse upon himself for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of a law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know, all my life, I had heard various things about Jesus. It was all rather mysterious to me growing up. I remember as a young man, you know, probably seven or eight or nine, you know, going to church. And uh, as the service was going on, I, I went to sleep on my mom's shoulder, you know. <laughs> that was just kind of what I did. But I also remember uh, waking up intermittently and hearing sometimes what the, the pastor was saying. And he would talk about this man who was on a cross or something like that. And I wondered about it, and then I went back to sleep on my mom. So it would take 10 to 11 years before I knew what he was talking about. I hadn't looked to him. I went about lost bearing the weight of thousands of sins upon my back, even every day increasing the weight of sin on my back I was carrying upon myself as a burden of darkness over my soul. But only one thing was needed for that great burden of sin against God to roll away. I needed only to look to Christ and I would have been saved. And by God's grace, praise God, I did, and He saved me. And the burden then and there fell off of my back. And it was gone no longer for me to carry because Jesus carried it for me. He bore it in my place. And so it may also be for you. You have carried the burden of your sins and you carry them with you still everywhere you go. But it need not be. Your burdens may be relieved this very day. John Bunyan, the Puritan pastor, preacher, writer, he wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress and he talks about the Christian life and he talks about Christian as he's progressing and he says of Christian as the great burden of sin fell away. He says, why I went but a little farther and I saw one as I thought my mind hang bleeding upon a tree and the very sight of him made my burden fall off my back. For I groaned under a very heavy burden, but then it fell down from off of me. 
And so also, may you look to this sin-cursed Savior. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He can take on your burdens. He came for that very reason. He came to bear the weight of the curse of sin upon Himself. And may it be that you, you simply look to Christ. Look to Christ. And He will save you. And dear Christian, you also, He did not come and die for you to take up your sins again. He came to bear your burdens and not for some, but for all of your sins. And so bear them no more. Run to Christ, one and all. Look to Him and never stop looking to Him. In Him is life and life everlasting. Direct your eyes to Christ who is the steady anchor of our souls. Though the seas billow and foam, He is the sure one. He is the one who came to deliver us. So look to Him, one and all. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning before You We thank You for these deep truths from Your Word. We thank You for Your goodness in giving them to us. And even now, I pray that, Father, that in our hearts, we would even now say, to God be the glory. Because that is exactly what we see here. If any any of us know Christ, because you, Father, took the initiative. You came for us. We did not come to you. Yet, we pray that even as we see these things, we see our spiritual deadness, our need for spiritual life, we would also see our need for response this morning that we would say all religious efforts are not sufficient, that I am not sufficient, and that Christ alone is sufficient. He came and bore the curse for me. That curse, that sin that I deserve, He bore on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so if there's anyone here, and in fact all of us here, Help us, Lord, to look to Your Son. He is our hope. And if there is one here who doesn't know Christ, may they even now see their need for Him, that all their burdens would roll away. The burdens of sin and the curse of sin. If there's any here who need to seek Your face and just humble themselves and pray, may they do that. May they come to you and recognize to you be the glory. You are in control. You are God in the midst of coronavirus or whatever else. Each of us look to Christ as the steady anchor of our souls.